All right, it is the week of December 13th, 2021, and this is the Fight Business Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Auger, and today we're going to do UFC 269 pay-per-view by predictions. You have Dustin Poirier being the A-side after beating Conor McGregor back-to-back, Charles Oliveira making his first title defense since that fantastic finish over Michael Chandler, and Amanda Nunez defending her title. How does that all add up to pay-per-view buys? I'll give you my prediction. Hopefully, I'm kind of close, unlike UFC 268, although I was still within my range. So hoping I can at least do that again here and give you a somewhat accurate prediction if we get a report, right? We don't know that we will, but if we do, hopefully these numbers are kind of close to that. Then we're going to talk about two fighters that lost this past Saturday night, Amanda Nunez, Dustin Poirier. Is it bad for business? Poirier, as I mentioned, just beat Conor McGregor twice. Does he now lose some of the McGregor rub that we assumed he got from doing that? Does Charles Oliveira gain some of that so it's kind of a wash? Nunez has been the most dominant 135-145 women's champion for quite some time. Now that she's lost, is Pena going to be a draw? We'll break all of that down here as well. Then we've got to talk about comments that Dana White made regarding a potential Amanda Nunez-Kayla Harrison fight. A lot to unpack there as Kayla Harrison was at the event and front row. But Dana said that this would have been a massive super fight. I'll break down whether or not I believe that. I'll give you my pay-per-view buy prediction had they headlined a card. And assuming we didn't have a strong co-main event like, say, John Jones versus Adesanya or something crazy like that. I'll give you an estimate of what I thought that matchup would have done if it had headlined a pay-per-view based on what we know from Amanda's drawing power and Kayla's drawing power. Then we've got to talk PFL Challenger Series. It is a new series on FUBU's, FUBO's new streaming service. Going to have celebrity judges, uh, Mike Tyson, Todd Gurley, a couple others. But really what we're going to focus on there is, is content king, especially for some of these MMA promotions that aren't quite bringing in the ratings or numbers that they ideally like. Then we've got to talk Canal Plus deal. The UFC has reached a deal with Canal Plus TV to bring French broadcasts to Sub-Sahara Africa as well as some other um, countries. It's a big deal. I'll talk about why this move was made and what the strategic significance is that it's being closed at the end of the year. Lastly, We have to talk about the UFC no longer paying for fighter COVID tests. It was announced today, as of this recording, that the UFC is no longer paying for fighters COVID tests, which they had been doing both domestically and internationally for the past couple years. I'll talk about why that change was probably made now and whether or not there's going to be backlash over it, because there may be. Well, we'll break it all down. All right. With that in mind, I've got timestamps as the at the bottom as always and let's go ahead and dive right in all right so first up we have ufc 269 pay-per-view by predictions this one's tough for a couple of reasons one it's the first pay-per-view that dustin poirier is headlining post conor mcgregor now we assume that he's going to get the mcgregor rub or the superstar rub if you are new to the show or you've forgotten because we haven't talked about it for a bit there seems to be kind of a transitive property in the MMA space when it comes to drawing power. If you beat a superstar who is pulling in a lot of casual pay-per-view buys, you yourself get a bump from that. And it makes sense, right? You've got people that really don't turn 
on UFC events any other time for the year except when they see Ronda Rousey. Ronda Rousey loses, gets brutally knocked out by Holly Holm. You've got a subset of fans who are super upset. They hate it. It's a whole thing. You've got another subset who are intrigued and like, wow, this Holm girl must be really good. I'm going to check out her next fight. That's why Holly Holm is still a pretty good draw on ESPN events and I would imagine in a pay-per-view slot if she was to headline one again. So we've seen this happen with Holm, with Masvidal beating Nate Diaz, Nate Diaz beating Conor McGregor, of course, etc. One would assume Dustin Poirier is going to get a rub from beating Conor McGregor. Yes, he's not the first person to do it, but I don't think that matters, right? We know that the two pay-per-views that were headlined by McGregor and Poirier this past year did very well, numbers-wise. We have reliable sources that gave us estimates there. They're over a million buys. Easy. You would assume that Poirier, who beat him twice, is going to get quite the bump from this. How much of a bump? We don't really know. And that's not to say Charles Oliveira isn't an X factor here, right? Because I would say he is, um, especially with his performance over Michael Chandler to get the title. But Dustin is the main draw here. A lot of the casual buyers who aren't normally buying pay-per-view events, they're probably tuning in for Dustin. So he's really the big A-side. When it comes to Nunez, well, you know, as we'll get to here in a little bit, I don't think she's much of a factor. We know, you know, based on Paul Giff's study, which actually was disputed, and I mentioned that on a particular episode, I think a month or so back, and I'm waiting for uh, Paul Giff's response. Hopefully it'll come out sooner. Paul, if you're watching this, where's your response, man? I'm dying to read that because it's very interesting to me. Um, But assuming that Giff's work still holds up, which I believe it probably does, we know that co-main event is not the main reason people tune in. Like 20% or so is why um, or is, is why someone might buy a pay-per-view. Generally, casual buyers are buying for the main event. So it's really the Dustin Poirier show here. If you look at the embeddeds and some of the social media metrics, it's trending very similar to UFC 268. <sighs> You, you see what Usman did right after beating Masvidal the first time and, and where he's kind of at now. And Usman w- or, and Masvidal was also obviously the main draw against Usman when they broke a million buys. So, you know what? I'm going to go 800,000, I think, um, rather than 700,000 buys for this particular event because even though I would imagine Usman and Dustin have similar drawing power, I really feel that Dustin beating Connor twice gave him an extra bump, right? Um, so I'm going to say 800,000 here. I think that's probably a good number. Could be lower. Could be, I think on the low end, maybe five or 600,000. I'd say, I'd say 600. I can't imagine it's below 600 unless Dustin really didn't get the McGregor rub, which is possible, right? This is the, you know, measuring stick for what we can expect Dustin to draw post Connor. So this is the first event. I, it's possible it could be lower than that, but I, I don't see it. I I'm, I'm guessing 800,000 buys and a low range of 600,000 million. 
it's possible, right? I mean, it is an end of the year event, the last one of the year, and then there's quite quite a big break. And you've got a fair amount of new fans from that COVID bump that happened in 2020. So yeah, I could maybe see it being a million, but I, I don't think so. I, don't, I really don't think this breaks a million. Just because as much as I love Oliveira and as fantastic a performance as he had against Chandler, I don't think he's enough of a B to bring it up, and I don't think Nunez is either. So even combined, I I would say 800,000. I'd say high 900,000. That's what I'm going to say. So my guess is 800,000, high range 900, low range 600, but I'm, I'm going to guess 800,000 for this one. So now we have to talk about the results of UFC 269 and whether or not they were bad for business. Two results in particular, the main and co-main event. Let's start with the main because I know the co-main is going to be the one that is a little bit more controversial and I feel like it just feels bigger, right? Just how big an upset that was. Um, so main event. I, it, it's really hard to say because it doesn't seem so far that attained that certain level of star power it's necessarily diminished much by losing, right? Connor is a perfect example of this. Now, he is probably the exception to the rule because he's Connor McGregor. He's so boisterous. He was such a phenomenon. Makes sense. But if you look at Rousey, right, when she came back and fought Nunez after getting knocked out by Holm, still drew very well. Um, and, and she also could be the rule. So for those of you that are saying that they both are, I hear you, but it's just another data point you need to take into account. You've got Nate Diaz maybe being the best example of someone who has lost multiple times since coming back, but still seemingly is a draw. I mean, Masvidal getting that bump was really from Diaz. And we haven't seen Masvidal in a pay-per-view since he's lost to Usman twice in a row, but I would assume he still is drawing much higher than he did prior to the Nate Diaz fight. And yes, he had the Ben Askren viral KO. He had this, yes, I, I hear all that, but really the tipping point was beating Nate Diaz at an event that a lot of casual fans were watching, right? At an event that they made boxing fans wait for <laughs> and had the rock at. In case you forgot, UFC 244, what a, what a time. I can't imagine Dustin's going to lose that much shine, especially given his first loss. He's also a very likable guy, right? Um, but then again, likable doesn't necessarily mean you've got the personality to pull numbers, so that's also something to consider. But I would imagine if he had the, the McGregor bump, which we're assuming he did, Maybe this fight, it takes off 100K buys, right? Um, or maybe those people get trans transferred over to Oliveira. And then you've got a chain. We've seen the chain reaction work too. A perfect example of the chain reaction of the transitive property is McGregor and Diaz, where Diaz beats McGregor, then Masvidal beats Diaz, then Usman beats Masvidal. Now, obviously, it diminished by the time it got to Usman, right, who's now consistently drawing around 
600 to 700,000 buys, 268 to 700,000. Um, but it's still much bigger bump than before he beat Masvidal. And again, as we talked about, it makes sense. You have casuals who only tune in for certain events, so they may really end up liking a lot of these fighters, right? If they watched and they actually sat down and watched pay-per-views regularly and watched the interviews, they may actually really like some of these fighters, but they're only exposed to them, you know, once in a blue moon. So it makes sense that, oh, okay, you watched Usman beat Masvidal. Well, actually, I really like Usman. I like what he said. I love the way he fought, especially the second time around with that crazy knockout. That's awesome. I'm an Usman guy now. And they probably would have been an Usman guy all along. They just had been exposed to him enough. Exposure is huge. We'll talk about that later on with the Canal Plus deal, but exposure to the product in general is the first step for any product. So this transitive property, it seemingly holds up, and I would imagine it's it's still going to hold up here where Oliveira may have taken or gotten a boost at least from beating Poirier because you probably had a lot of people that wouldn't have normally watched watching at 269 and Oliveira showed a lot of heart. It was a good fight back and forth. I mean, makes a lot of sense. So would not be shocked. There is the un- uh, unfortunate fact really that it just seemingly is if, if you cannot speak English, um, you tend to draw a little bit lower and that's, an unfortunate thing, right? But that that's something we've seen consistently um, in several years, and it's probably because demand are the majority of it in the USA, and we've talked about the fan base before and all that, but I still think Oliveira gets a bump here. And I would hope that Poirier stays where he is. I can't imagine, even if he's diminished from this loss, it's much. So I don't think that's really hurt the UFC too much. If anything, you may come out with a net positive because you end up with a new star or someone that at least gets a bump from a newer star, and then you've got Poirier, who should be in a good place beating McGregor back-to-back. So I think main event is a net positive. Co-main event, right? Nunes versus Pena. This is actually very good for business, in my opinion. Nunez has never been a consistent draw. We'll break down the specific numbers here in a minute when we talk about her versus Kayla Harrison super fight, but as dominant as Nunez has been, no numbers have backed up that she's really good at drawing in casual fans, right? I think her losing and giving the spotlight to Pena is a big deal. Pena has a different personality, may attract more people, may not, we don't really know. But either way, it opens the possibility of a new person in that championship role. And that's key. The the one thing the UFC wishes they could control probably more than anything else is they kind of wish it was like pro wrestling, where you were able to assign who would be champion, right? If that was the case, you'd have Israel Adesanya stay 
five champion, definitely be two oh five champion and have won against Bobvish. You know, you you'd pick and choose. You'd have McGregor as the lightweight champion for sure. You you'd that's probably one thing that they wish they had. Now it's an actual sport, so you can't just assign you know, the winner, you can kind of make matchups and give people different paths to the title, all of that. But ultimately, it is a competition, so you can't do that. Nunez has not been a major draw for the promotion. Despite beating Cyborg, despite being so dominant, now the door is opened up for at least somebody new to step in and for there to be some type of change, right? Now, it's very possible Nunez and Peña rematch, and Nunez wins again, and she's back on top, and whatever numbers she's drawing pretty much stay there. I don't think they would take that much of a dive since she lost once, especially if she regained her belt in dominant fashion. But at least you've got an opportunity for somebody else to have the spotlight as champion for a little while and see what those numbers look like. Rather than, hey, we know what Amanda is drawing, and we're going to continue to have that happen unless we find a way to boost it, which is what I believe the Harrison-Nunez fight was all about. But ultimately, I I don't think it's bad for business. I really don't. I think it's it's a good thing. So between that and the main event, I think you really had a net positive for the UFC to end the year. Because main event, you would hope you get Oliveira to be a little bit more of a draw and Poirier retains whatever bump he got from McGregor. And then you'd hope that Pena makes enough noise and gets enough attention, you get new people following her that would have never been exposed to her, right? How can you not love that crazy underdog story? It's similar to when Holm beat Rousey in terms of that underdog story, right? Where Holm was such a massive underdog, nobody thought she could do it. And then Holm goes out there and dominates. This is even more of an underdog story because Pena definitely struggled the first round. Knocked down, you know, almost got choked out and had to defend, then comes roaring back in the second round and gets the submission. If you're a casual fan, you've got to love that. And Pena, again, does the classic Nate Diaz line post-fight, is brash and brazen and outspoken. That personality probably is going to attract certain types of people. And it very well could be get more eyes on the UFC's 135 women's division. So I think it's a good thing. I think overall, yes, you had two two people that going in, you kind of hope what one if you're the UFC from a business perspective, right? You were you were expecting Nunez to win honestly. If you look at the odds, I'm sure a lot of people were shocked by that internally. I mean, you don't bring Kayla Harrison there to the front row and to the event unless you are pretty confident Nunez is going to win. And you're probably hoping Poirier wins and then becomes champ and you've got a, a big draw from somebody who beat McGregor and it only, you know, solidifies his legacy and bumps him up further. But I still think you're in an okay spot here. And there's still a lot you can do with everybody involved in the main and co-mate. So I think it's a net positive. Maybe not what the promotion intended or initially wanted, but I think you see net positive overall in terms of potential pay-per-view buys and future drawing power moving forward. All right, so with everything we just talked about, we've now got to address Kayla Harrison versus Amanda Nunes. Post-fight press conference, Dana White was talking about if 
Nunez had won, you would have seen a massive fight between Harrison and Nunez, which tells me that, again, the deal was pretty much signed or ink was just about to be dry, especially if Nunez wins. Um, you had reports that they moved Harrison up from her seat to the front row, presumably to get in the cage and challenge Nunez if she beats Pena. And by all indications, this is a 180 degree from what White had said before, right? That that Harrison should stay in the PFL, all this stuff. That seems to have just been to throw people off, right? Which we, we know Dana does this. He's done it multiple times before. Um, so that's not super shocking. But White did say, you know, if you think Nunez is in a draw, and I'm paraphrasing here, but if you think Nunez is in a draw, it would have been a massive super fight. Just wait until we would have put on Nunez versus Harrison. That would have been such a big fight, one of the biggest fights ever. I don't know if he said ever, but you get what I'm saying. So the most interesting part about that is I I can't believe that's true. I can't believe that a Amanda Nunez, Kayla Harrison fight would have been anywhere near as big as White was trying to make it out to be. Now, it's possible, again, UFC and co. have different metrics that they use to project these things, so they might have different numbers and things that we can't see, but let's, let's break down what we know publicly regarding Nunez's strong power and Harrison's strong power. So with Nunez, right, we have reports, some that are verified, some that aren't, but we could, you know, take with a big grain of salt. When Nunez headlines, she does not do historically well. She did at UFC 200 because she was put in the main event last minute against Tate. That was originally supposed to be uh, Connor versus Nate, and then it changed to Jones versus Cormier until the last minute drug test failure. But really, you had Brock Lesnar on the card. You had that crazy, super stacked UFC 200 card. I think Lesnar was most of the draw there. I don't think that's really attributable to Nunez at all because that was really her coming out, right? Tate was champion. Nunez was the semi-afterthought in that whole ordeal. So, yes, she was technically in the headliner, but she was not the A-side there. Nowhere near it for 200. Then you look at 207. Nunez versus Rousey. Again, Rousey is the main headliner. The drawing power. Nunez is maybe a slight B because there's some intrigue. She's champion now. But, I mean, that was all Rousey. And both of those broke a million buys. So, yes... Again, Nunez is technically in the headlining spot, but not exactly the the big drawing superstar, right? So then we look to UFC 224 and UFC 215. Sorry, UFC 215 before 24. So 215 was against Valentina Shevchenko, split decision. Not the most exciting fight, kind of controversial dis- decision. It's pretty split down. I mean, I have to go back and rewatch it, but I had it for Valentina. Um, but regardless, that didn't do that many buys, right? Reported, I believe, let's see here. I believe it was in the 
like 200 range? 200 range? Estimated buys, according to Bloody Elbow in 2017, this article here, which I would trust, because I'm assuming this is John Nash. Let me take a look. But I mean, I got to assume. Oh, it's Mookie Alexander. Still, still trusted. Um, 100,000 buys. UFC 215 did. That was International Fight Week. That was a big thing. That was really trying to push Amanda as a star. She did 100,000 buys. UFC 224, also not very good. Sub 100,000 is what reports stated. Um, 85,000 is the number that I'm getting here, which don't quote me on the 85,000 number, but it's, it's, it's very bad. Um, reportedly did the lowest pay-per-view buys for the company. And that was Nunes versus Raquel Pennington. And then you have UFC 250, Nunes versus Felicia Spencer. We don't really have any numbers on that one from reputable sources. We do have one report that stated 90,000. I could see that. I really could. Um, I think it probably a bit higher because that was post-COVID, but... I, I wouldn't be shocked if it was in that range. Could probably add 50% of that to 140-ish, right? But probably low. I, I would believe that. So we know Nunez is not a draw, historically. The two pay-per-view headline, headlining events that we know we have numbers for, very bad. The one that you got to take with quite a grain of salt is still only reportedly bad. Right, you didn't have some counter report out there that's like, oh, you UFC 250 did 500,000 buys. No, don't have anything like that. Could be higher. I, I'm not gonna hang my hat on that 90,000 number, but probably not great, especially compared to what some of the other post-COVID pay-per-views did. And again, it's unfortunate if you're a Nunez fan. I hear you. I, I've had this conversation with many a friend and colleague. But she just doesn't seem to be a draw. She puts on exciting fights. She, you know, was a very dominant champion. Doesn't seem to be a draw. So let's look at Kayla Harrison, right? PFL ratings this year were not the best. Um, I'm going to specifically focus on the championship one, which, yes, was a longer show, I think probably than any other year and really dragged out. 166,000 viewers on ESPN. Now, we don't know how many people were watching on ESPN Plus. That does factor into everything quite a bit. But even if you look at 2019, right, the last season they had, that event did better overall. I think that's one of their highest, if not the their highest ratings um, in the company history. But that was still 361,000 for the 2019 championship event. And Harrison, you know, is the star of those shows. I would say Harrison is the drawing power. There are a couple other people that could also draw on that particular card, but we know that they're pushing her. That's the whole thing. The ratings aren't there. If there are ESPN Plus views on the backside we can't see, maybe they are. Maybe there's a lot of engagement with Harrison specifically, but I just don't... I don't see the engagement up to a level that she would be some massive draw. 
And so then if you're thinking, well, okay, maybe separately they're not the biggest draws, but they've also been fighting people that are kind of, I don't want to say below them because that's not true, but they're in fights that where they're heavily favored, right? It's assumed that they're going to win most of their fights, Nunes and Harrison. So you put those together and then it's a super fight. Well, that changes everything. But I don't know that it does. We've seen super fights before. They don't always equate to bigger buys. Right? Blavich versus Adesanya drew a little bit less or about average to what Izzy normally pulls. You had Stipe versus DC, light heavyweight champion, heavyweight champion. I believe you had 400,000 buys out of that, maybe 500. So you got 1,000, 100,000. Sorry, not 1,000, 100,000 bump from that. That's not insignificant, but it's not some crazy increase. It's not some exponential growth in casual pay-per-view buys. So I can't understand where looking at what Harrison was doing TV ratings wise and what Nunes was doing pay-per-view buy wise in the headliner where this exponential growth would have come from. Yes, the UFC would have promoted it big time. I'm sure of that. But if it was going to headline a card, which is what White really alluded to, I don't think this does above 200K, maybe 300. I think the biggest bump you get is from the more hardcore fans that turn off for Nunes. Go ahead and turn on that particular pay-per-view to see Harrison versus Nunes and see what happens. You you get those fans. The semi-hardcore or hardcore fans that don't particularly like Nunes or don't watch Nunes pay-per-views, they may turn in for that one. But I don't see a lot of casual people tuning in for it. Right? I, I just, I don't know where you get that growth from. Unless there is some secret ESPN Plus numbers that Dana has where he's going over all this stuff, every indicator we have from a public-facing entity tells us that this would have been a pretty low buying event, even though it would have been a super fight. And if you are yelling at me now through the screen saying, or, or through your headphones saying, oh, no way, what are, you, what are you talking about? Like, that would have been so big. Remember that if you're watching this show, you are more of a hardcore MMA fan. You probably watch a lot of the pay-per-views, you probably, you know, keep up with quite a bit of the sport. I don't know how you sell that particular fight to a casual audience who rarely, if ever, tunes in. I just don't know. I mean, yes, you have dominance versus dominance. That can work sometimes, but I I don't feel like it would have had that super fight feel, personally. Let me know your thoughts in the comments or at me on Twitter. Um, do you think it would have been a super fight if we'd done Kayla Harrison versus Amanda Nunes? Would you have watched? If you normally don't watch or buy pay-per-view for the UFC, would you have bought that one? Or if you are, you know, a pirate, which I'm sure some of you are, <laughs> um, 
would you have have said that's a fight I'm going to pay for? Because I I don't know. I don't see it. Maybe I'm missing something, but I'd love to hear from more of the hardcore community on if you think it would have been a super fight. If you have friends you know would have been tuning into that that maybe don't normally watch fights with you. Could you have pitched that to a friend or colleague and said, hey, man, super fight's coming up. You want to watch? And gotten them to come watch with you or buy the pay-per-view. I, I don't know. I really don't know on that one. I'm going to say, again, 200, 300K. Maybe 400 if that's the new base for kind of hardcore MMA watchers, but I, I'm going to say lower than that. I'm going to say 300K is what I think that would have done. Let me know your thoughts. All right, so the next thing to talk about is PFL's Challenger Series. So this is an interesting idea. I understand why they're doing it, right? But you've got Mike Tyson, Todd Gurley um, being, you know, special guest judges. Not the fights will be judged by them, but they get to select two advances or something of that nature. Um, but it's, it's built as you can see a modern-day Rocky go from an unknown pro to get into the tournament and then win a million dollars. And it's it builds kind of a contender series, right? They one of the quotes I saw from PFL was this is not your father's contender series. Whatever that's supposed to mean. <laughs> I mean marketing, right? Uh but here's the thing about this, right? I just talked about PFL's ratings in regards to the Kayla Harris and Amanda Nunes super fight situation. And we know that PFL's ratings have not been great this year, especially their championship event was not abysmal, but pretty bad, right? At least from the ratings we could see. It's possible a lot of people turned into ESPN+. Plus. It's possible that there were other mitigating factors, but on the surface, ratings for PFL were not the best. Yet Fubo has picked up a series that will probably do less viewers than the actual PFL, right? Because it's kind of a shoot spinoff thing. And is is paying for for it and, and has reached a deal for this. Why? Again, assuming that the numbers we're seeing on the surface are pretty accurate and that the PFL's ratings are not ideal... Why, if you're Fubo, do you look at that and say, you know what, I want to go ahead and sign that up? This goes back to content being king. Something the WFL commissioner talked and founder talked about, and I pointed out on our last episode, right? WFL is talking about 75 hours of content. Who wants to be our broadcast partner? This is content. And for streaming services... Right? Content is... Look at what Netflix did when they first kind of made that shift to pure streaming. Right? Think about how many ridiculous shows they made that weren't well-reviewed and they just kept making movies, kept making series, blah, blah, blah. They still kind of do that to an extent. Right? Look at Apple TV. Look at any of these streaming services. Content is king with this. It's just about having enough product for consumption the thought being right that it's similar to tv where back in the day for those of you that are too young to remember or that just never really did this which pains me to say this 
um, you know, you turn on your TV and you channel surf. You'd look and say, oh, what's on this channel? What's on this? Oh, I don't want to watch this show, but I want to watch something, so I'll go here. Right? Very common thing. They made up a term for it called channel surfing. Uh, that should tell you how common it was. <laughs> that still happens on streaming. How many times do you log into Netflix or Hulu or what have you, and you're like, oh, I don't really know what I want to watch today. Let me look around. See if we can find something. That keeps you engaged with the site. That keeps you engaged with the service. Because they need to keep churning out new contract content and renewing, you know, series that does well and kicking things that don't. But some someone like Fubo TV is probably much more starved for content than obviously say Netflix or ESPN Plus or any of that. And this is an opportunity for them to get unique content on their platform. Plus, Fubo TV is all about sports. Is you know, watch live sports, right? That's the first thing they say. If you look up Fubo TV right now, right on your computer or your phone, Fubo TV, and it's got ABC, CBS, Fox, and all of that. Okay, well, that didn't go exactly as I planned, but first thing down, right in the Google search, your bottom right as part of the six options that are under Fubo TV, stream live TV and sports. Sports is called out directly though. Not stream live TV and movies, stream live TV and dramas, oh no, it's sports. Sports content rights are massive. That's the point I'm trying to get to. It's, it's a huge thing and I, I cannot express to you that as how the importance of streaming rights for various sports as cable starts dying. We talked about this a little bit, I think two episodes ago or last episode. It's all about sports streaming rights. Tons of money is bid for this. The UFC is expecting to at least double whatever rights they're getting from ESPN Plus right now when their deal is up which is still so many years away, but they're expecting a minimum of doubling it. Sports streaming rights are king. This still qualifies as that, PFL Challenger Series, right? It's going to qualify as live sports content that will ID descriptions. Plus, when you see what ESPN Plus and Disney has said regarding the UFC driving subscriptions to the ESPN Plus app, that's massive. Right, but would love to have just a fraction of that, and maybe the PFL Challenger Series will do that because you're going to have a bunch of hardcore fans. You're going to have MMA journalists or reporters probably sign up for Fubo to watch the Challenger Series. I don't know how many, but you're going to at least get some content, and and or I guess rather subscribers from that content, right? Bare minimum. Content is king, and. As long as new streaming services pop up, don't be shocked to see more offshoots like this. And, and don't be surprised that Fubo TV picked up something like Challenger Series. It doesn't mean that the PFL is doing much, much better behind the scenes. It could mean that. It's possible. But it's probably more likely that content is king right now for streaming services and this fits the bill. 
right? So that's what I would say in regards to PFL Challenger Series being on Fubo coming out. It's not that the PFL is doing exceedingly well and they're now doing a contender series and everything is all rosy. It could be that, but it also just could be, hey, we found a service willing to take on this content because they need it. it. We've proven or at least convinced them that it's going to drive some subscriptions and engagement, so we're going to go ahead and do it. Right? That's what you want to take away from the Challenger series being on Fubo. Next thing we've got to talk about here is a deal that was made with the UFC and Canal Plus TV. So this is from sportspromedia.com. And this story writes, the UFC has agreed to a broadcast partnership with French-based media giant the Canal Plus Group for live rights to the mixed martial arts promotion in more than 25 countries across Africa and Asia. Through the agreement, the pay-per-view TV operator will provide French language coverage of UFC events in sub-Saharan Africa for the first time, as well as also cover native language coverage in both Vietnam and Myanmar. As a company, we want to bring UFC content to every corner of the world for our fans, said David Shaw. UFC Senior Vice President of International Content. Our partnership with Canal Plus has allowed us to provide a more localized offering for French-speaking Sub-Saharan Africa, Vietnam, and Myanmar for the first time, and we are excited to work alongside Canal Plus to bring enhanced access for our fans in Africa and Asia. So this is, you know, not your run-of-the-mill deal, but it's, it's an important broadcast partnership right? It is furthering UFC content and providing that product in a native language for a large population. Um, Myanmar in particular, right? We've talked about this. One championship's viewership, what views they do get generally come from Myanmar and, and you know, just Myanmar really loving uh, one championship and on, on in Long Song. I'm sorry if I'm butchering that, uh, but I mean, we, we've talked about this before, that that's kind of a market that one championship had kind of cornered. This will hopefully allow the UFC to engage those fans as well. And then 25 countries across Africa and Asia and, and sub-Saharan Africa, that's big. That's purposely done. David Shaw talked about bringing the first UFC event to Africa in 2023. I think that got moved up to 2022 in a more recent interview, especially with Nganu uh, being champion, as well as Usman and, and Adesanya having, you know, their their nationality there as well. Um, it's it's important. Right? It's important to build out that structure and make sure that if you're going to make a move into a new market, fans can easily access it. And this is kind of, you know, the priming for the product is what you call this. This is making sure like, hey, we have an existing product service here that we know works really well. It's kind of just out of the box, like out of the box packaging, right? And it's putting on UFC events, putting on fights. We are now making sure you can access those fights via providing them in your native language. 
I don't think we're going to see a major jump in ratings in those areas necessarily. Um, I mean, the, it does say here that the Canal Plus Group pay, pay TV network has more than 13 million subscribers across Europe, Africa, and Asia. I'm not sure what the breakdown is in each region. I need to know that, uh, dig a little bit further, but you're going to get more viewers out of this, sure. But with fighting, too, you probably could have watched some of the fights in English and you didn't need to understand the commentary. You could still watch the fight, see what was going on. This will get more engagement, though. And this is kind of priming that, saying like, hey, we now finally are producing this in a language you can easily understand, your native language. This will get more engagement out of you. And if you weren't roped in because, again, it was viewed as more of a foreign language uh, product, now you can feel more like, oh, okay, I, I understand this, so I'm, I'm more engaged. There will be a bump there. But I truly believe that this is being done, especially making sure the deal is announced now and getting done now. I truly believe that's to prime that region by exposing them to the product and then going to have a UFC Africa event. Right? I would imagine several. They, they say they want to go to Africa for the first time. They, the UFC does tend to do just one big event the first time they move into a new market, which I'm assuming is to kind of gauge, you know, fan engagement, um, you know, different, there's always different political issues and, you know, negotiations in terms of rent, having the stadium be rented out, what price you're going to negotiate there, all this other stuff. There's a lot to deal with in going into a brand new market for the first time. Different customs, different, you know, rules, especially depending on the governments, uh, different, you know, cultural barriers in terms of will fans really engage with your product as you would assume. It's a whole thing. Africa has been a continent that makes a lot of sense to bring fighting to, right? You've got Senegalese wrestling. You've got, uh, I forget what the new thing is called, but it's kind of like a bare knuckle uh, karate type thing um, that's that's popular down there. You, you have a market that seemingly this would fit. This product would fit, especially if you bring down Nganu or Adesanya or Usman, right? I think Nganu is probably the biggest draw for that region by far. Um, should he get past Cyril Gan, a, a knockout highlight reel for Nganu in Africa, in Cameroon, would be massive. I don't know that they would do Cameroon. Um, they're probably going to look at a bigger market to initially start, but still, right? I mean, be a huge deal. So this, to me, again, is viewed as kind of priming everything. It was makes sense to happen, I'm sure, just in terms of increasing your product, and I'm sure they're getting paid quite a bit by the Canal Plus Group, given what their media rights deals have done before and all the renegotiations they've been going through lately. So I'm sure they're getting a profit out of it anyway, but I think it was done now specifically to prime hosting a UFC event in Africa. I don't know where they'll do it. I don't know exactly when, but 
but I would imagine it happens sooner rather than later. Could still be 2023, the initial uh, year that was thrown out by Lawrence Epstein quite a while ago um, during that interview that I covered um, for, I believe it was Sportico. But I, I'm not 100% sure on that. Either way, it certainly seems to be setting that up, though. Right? If Ngannou is champion, I would imagine he's going to headline. If he's not, I mean, Kamaru or Adesanya is a good pick. Um, I would say Kamaru, probably, you know, the Nigerian nightmare. It probably makes sense to have him uh, headline the event. But, you know, you could do it all three, too, right? Have all three guys defend their belts, make it a big whole event i could see that as well i just think this is this deal is getting done at a strategic time it gives them about a minimum of a six month runway i would imagine close to a year plus runway if they want to host an event in africa and to get that all done you've got covid still kind of lingering around a lot of Places are now saying or projecting that COVID will end in 2022. At least some of the bigger banks are, but I mean, they are investment banks, so who knows in terms of uh, medical coverage. But there's a lot of expectation that the pandemic will end in 2022 and it will become more endemic. Should that happen and things really open up, Africa's probably the first place the UFC really wants to travel internationally to host an event again. That would be my guess. They're doing live events domestically in the U.S. Um, They've done Abu Dhabi, yes, that does count. But outside of Fight Island, doing kind of their tour of the world, I got to imagine Africa is right at the top of the list. And then you have to worry about scheduling, right? That might be part of the reason they're doing Nganu versus Gone at 270 right in January because should Nganu win, that can give them a good six, eight-month break in between fights as well to then schedule something for Nganu in Africa at the end of the year. There's a lot of moving parts with all this stuff. It is not as simple as, hey, COVID's done, restrictions are done, go ahead and you know, call us up in Cameroon and we will you know, book an arena and we're all good to go. And Francis, you down? Of course you are, we're good. It's not, there are so many moving parts. Uh, as we've talked about money-wise, the UFC wants to keep fighter pay capped at that 20% or lower. Really, they're aiming for lower at this point. And so you can't have Nganu fight like four times a year and fight have Adesanya fight four times a year and all these other people fighting that much because that will raise overall fighter cost for the year, right? So it, there's a lot of moving parts to this. But to me, this is this is a clear sign that they're priming to go to Africa, especially announcing it at the end of this year, would not be shocked if Q4 you hear about an event in Africa or targeted Q1 of 2023. That's what I'm going to say in regards to this deal. But makes sense to do the deal regardless. Um, but the timing to me is that signals something to me, in, in my personal opinion. All right. Last but not least, we need to talk about the UFC no longer paying for COVID tests. This isn't a shocker, right? Um, I know a lot of people are saying it's not that expensive, all of that. Don't know what the overhead is, right? But 
it probably isn't that massive. I would agree. If you're paying for the test to be done through a kit and we're talking like a Binax kit, that's 20 bucks. You could probably buy those in bulk. Yeah, shipping in ends up being, I don't know, anywhere from 30 to $40 uh, US. And then you have to do three or four of those for um, Fighter in Their Corner. So you're looking at, let's say high end, $160 per fighter. So if we assume 14 fights, that's 28 fighters. Uh, so you're looking at, I don't know, close to close to 480, closer to 460 something per event. Um, you'd also have to do staff, I'm sure. I'm sure there's more overhead than that, right? Um, especially depending on where you're shipping the kits to and doing all that fun stuff. But that would be a low range if you're using Binax kit. For international fighters, they were going to a lab, so we don't know what the cost of that is because, you know, in the U.S., labs can range from being $100 to several thousand dollars because they know they can charge that because insurance will pay for it, part of our super fun healthcare system. Um, but I'm sure they looked at the overall overhead and said, okay, we want to cut that, right? This comes at a time when several companies are cutting pandemic pay, emergency relief pay, all of that. Kroger's cutting it. Um, who else was cutting? Some bigger companies are are cutting, you know, emergency COVID relief, emergency COVID pay. Let's see what it says. Uh, let's do a quick search here. But I mean, a lot of companies are, are basically ending like the COVID bonuses that they had started back in 2020. This was always going to have to end at some point, right? Um, that was always the plan. Even if COVID persisted and was just kind of this nuisance that hung around, some of these companies are, are paying ridiculous overhead because they're paying for a test for everybody. They're doing lab tests, P PCR. That's just too much cost out. Um, the hero pay, the indefinite... Uh, pandemic sick leave, you know, for a large retailer like Kroger, that adds up big time. That ends up being a massive benefit. We're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe even millions of dollars, depending. I mean, when you add everything up for workers, depending on how it was utilized, it could be millions of dollars. It, it exposes you, even if everybody doesn't use it, it exposes you to millions of dollars. And it's not shocking this is coming at a time when, A, um, a lot of the country in the U.S. has kind of said, yep, we're, we're done with this, it's over, blah, 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 and B, the Omicron variant, which is supposedly 6.2 times more transmissible than Delta, so that it's likely, I mean, they're saying it's milder, they don't know for sure, right, but it's likely that more of the workers are going to have to use the benefits. They don't want, as this, this thing spreads like wildfire, you know, Kroger does not want to have, you know, a, a quarter of their employees out on pandemic sick leave and getting this emergency pandemic benefit. 
it it makes sense that they're making the decision to do that now. There is a lull there, whether they face backlash, whether they do all this, we'll see. But like right now, right, it's not super surprising that these large retailers are doing it. When other companies start doing that, right, even though the UFC is not giving COVID sick leave pay or all this other stuff, they're just paying for tests. When other companies are starting to let go of those benefits or saying we're not going to pay for tests anymore, we're not going to do this, blah, blah, blah. The UFC then can take that as a signal for, oh, great. Other businesses are now ending this. We can now wind this down without being singled out. Right? We can now wind down this benefit and say, well, everybody's ending their benefits. And yes, the MMA media will point it out. Obviously, that's how, you know, we heard about the story with Ara Hawani Substack breaking this, and then it's been circulating through social media. But they don't want the mainstream media sing- singling them out, is really what it comes down to. At this point, the UFC and co. know they're going to have quite a bit of scrutiny regarding a lot of their practices, a lot of what they're doing but it doesn't really seem to affect them. Mainstream media, however, could cause them more problems. And they know that. Endeavor knows that. And so you see a bunch of other companies starting to wind it down. Endeavor views that as a safe signal of, okay, we can wind down this. And whether that's Endeavor's call or UFC's call, we don't really know. But Endeavor ultimately wants to continue to keep costs being low because they're still in cost-cutting mode because they haven't turned the profits they'd like to turn through several of their other businesses. UFC is is their crown jewel. But they, they still are very much in the anything we can cut, let's cut. We want our costs down. UFC will bring up the revenue. That's great, but let's go through and cut as much as we can. They're still in that mode. They've been in that mode since they acquired a majority stake, they're even more so going to be in that mode since purchasing the company outright. And so this is overhead. It may only amount to a couple thousand dollars per event. It may amount to something like ten to $20,000 a year or less. It's still overhead that the UFC doesn't want to pay. And it's what they agreed to be temporary overhead so that they could initially host events. Now it's been quite clear that they're coming back and doing live events throughout multiple cities, that COVID restrictions throughout the U.S. are pretty much non-existent or, you know, becoming non-existent, that pandemic fatigue has saturated this country. So now they can cut that overhead. It's not shocking. The only thing I would say might be shocking about it is that they decided to do it for this weekend's card on the 18th rather than just waiting until the new year, right? But it's possible that if you make that change in the new year, there'd be some more scrutiny. Um, If other companies weren't rolling up benefits or if Omicron spreads quite a bit and then companies start to increase benefits, right? You don't want to be the one company now saying, oh, we're not paying for those tests anymore. You do it when it's socially acceptable. It's blending in. It's a thing that happens quite often in business. If you want to look at any particular industry, if you see one of them cutting a benefit or a service, 
almost always, if it gives them some type of cost advantage or revenue advantage or what have you, other companies will mimic it. Especially if the backlash isn't so great that it causes, you know, that company to the only time that doesn't happen is if the backlash for something is so big that then the company, you know, decides to kind of ride out the bad press or they reinstate whatever they were cutting, right? That's happened before. But if that doesn't happen, if there is no pushback, companies will do it and their competitors will see that and they'll start doing it too. It's it's how it works. Pick any industry. You will see that happen. It happens all the time. Again, we're talking about how the UFC is winding down COVID testing. Well, yeah, Kroger's winding down paying a bunch of other stuff. A a bunch of pandemic relief programs are winding down across multiple retailers and businesses. It's hard to just single out one. Right? It's, It's how it works. So I'm not shocked by this. Makes perfect sense. Um, Yeah, I I mean, expect the UFC to keep cutting overhead, and this is what this is, overhead. All right, guys, I want to thank you so much for watching or listening. If you're watching on YouTube, hit that like, subscribe, bell notification. If you're listening on Anchor, Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, appreciate you guys as always. I want to apologize as I'm recording this. There have been a lot of internet issues. Uh, Big shout out to John Brannigan, for doing his editing thing, because I'm sure he'll make it look wonderful. But if it's a little goofy or a little weird, you know, don't don't hold it against us because this internet was terrible and I wanted to get this out uh, to make sure we covered some of these bigger things today. Uh, again, let me know if you have any questions on anything I've covered. Do you believe Nunez Harrison is the mega fight that White said it was going to be? Uh, do you think it hurt the business that Nunez or Poirier lost? What do you think UFC 269 pay-per-view buys are going to be? Let me know in the comments or hit me up on Twitter with those answers. Uh, love you guys as always. We will be doing another show next week, and then I'm going to be taking a holiday break. But we'll have an end-of-the-year show special next week. Uh, going to have lots of fun things. So send in any questions you have business-wise for this year, for next year, because I will be answering them next week big time. With that in mind, y'all, that wraps up tonight's episode. And until next time, get money.